Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. Following a very public falling out over Fortnite, the Epic versus Apple court case has started. With plenty at stake for both companies keen to get their points across, what does it mean for us as consumers? Should you care? And has anything juicy actually been said so far? Pocket editor Chris Hall joins me to discuss the possible ramifications. Meanwhile, I talked to projector manufacturer Optima about growing trends within the home projector market. Turns out more and more of us are opting for garden cinemas, movie nights and big screen gaming. And Pocket Reviews editor Mike Lowe has been driving around in the brand new Toyota Mirai, a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle. That's the future right there, isn't it? To see what it's like. Is it the future of driving? Stay tuned to find out. So, Chris, bring us up to speed on the Epic versus Apple battle. Why are we here in the first place? Well, I don't know if I have the time to bring us all the way up to speed because this is much more than just that headline. Epic versus Apple is the main event, but there is a whole lot that has come before and I'm sure there is a whole lot that will come after it. There are a lot of uh, frustrations that have been building up around big ecosystems and Apple obviously is the biggest and the complaints here about the App Store and the accusation that Apple is essentially running a monopoly and that app developers don't have the freedom to do what they want to do. Much of it comes down to payment because Apple obviously and openly says that they take a 30% cut and Mm. uh, some app developers are not very happy about this but also They've run into problems when they've tried to find other ways to provide payments. And that's really how we came to this point today where Apple and Epic are in court with high profile names on both sides coming into court to to give their evidence. And this will eventually play out in the hands of judges. And, you know, we have we really have no idea what's going to happen on which direction this is going to go in. No, and I suppose that's the key thing here, isn't it? It's that sense of Epic with their for- incredibly for- popular Fortnite game have turned around and said, well, we want to be able to our customers to buy V-Bucks via a system that's outside of, of Apple's uh, own payment system. And therefore that breaks the agreement of being in the App Store in the first place. And so Apple booted them out. And then it seems a little bit that that was all contrived with... You know, then a very quick court case came into the case, and you've got adverts. You know, you've got that famous Fortnite 1984 style advert where it was claiming, you know, Apple has become Big Brother and, and all the other stuff. Is there, you know, what's if, if it goes Epic's way, what, what's likely to happen? Well, what Epic really wants to do is to try and, as they see it, take back some control. They want to be, they want to have the freedom to control their product on Apple's platform. And this is where the argument really plays out. Apple invented the iPhone. They invented iOS. They invented the App Store. They provide the hardware and the mechanism for all these people to 
play games like Fortnite on their phones. And so Apple says, well, we've created it. We own it. We're a private company. We can do what we like. If you don't want it, you can go somewhere else with it. Whereas Epic is trying to take a separate angle, saying that they don't have the freedom or the choice to, to do anything else and that they should be allowed to offer other systems for payment, for example, for these V-Bucks. Epic got itself into this position with Apple because they offered discounted V-Bucks if you bought them via an Epic payment system rather than using Apple's payment, thereby sidestepping and undercutting Apple. You know, that takes the bite out of Apple Mm. twice because Apple don't get their cut and also people are buying them for cheaper elsewhere. And obviously everyone's going to choose to buy it cheaper elsewhere if they can. The likely outcome or the the outcome that Epic would want is is to be able to offer those sorts of services where they can, you know, provide their own payment mechanisms so that people don't have to go through Apple. So actually Epic is then getting the revenue that they would expect from their product rather than a big slice of that going over to Apple. But I suppose that the the slippery slope here for that is that if Epic allow or are allowed to then offer different payment systems and different in-app purchases outside of Apple's system, then that will open up quite a big floodgate for the 1.8 million other apps that are available, which will make it even harder for Apple to to either monetize that or to even control it because all of a sudden things will be sold in different ways. And I suppose that's the problem there, isn't it? That Apple doesn't want to relinquish that power or that control that it has over its system, because it then is, is a can of worms. Well, yes, Apple is obviously trying to protect a very valuable revenue stream. And and rightly so. And, and I don't think there's any business that would say, okay, let's just let let's just forego that and not not bother with taking that cash anymore. It's a, it's a hard position for Apple to defend slightly because they have obviously performed so well. They have so much money. They're, you know, one of the biggest companies on the planet, the most successful tech company, and an ideal target for this sort of thing. But it, as you're, but you're right, it could set a, a new precedent if people are then able to, to use different mechanisms on Apple devices. And Apple have, Apple have been very, uh, very locked down with this and said, no, we're not going to allow these other mechanisms. And they use arguments like privacy and security um, to defend that position not allowing people to use other installers for apps, you know, saying that they control the app store, not allowing other payment mechanisms because they want to guarantee the experience and the smoothness and everything else. Um, so so that there is there is so much wrapped up in this. And so um, Epic, as you say, Epic really set a trap for Apple to bring this case into court to challenge that position that Apple is running a monopoly. And they have drawn in a whole range of other app developers who have been going through other courts. And let's not forget that Apple was also up in court in the EU for uh, similar anti-competitive practices around Apple Music recently, um, or music services on its platform. So there's definitely a lot going on for Apple to consider at the moment. Yeah, and I suppose the interesting thing as well on on the side of that is that you know one, one of the things that's come out of the court case so far is that Apple, the money, the revenues that Fortnite generate on uh, on Apple devices on iOS is actually quite small in the grander scale of things as 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 that business as a whole, and that it's you know almost fifty percent of their revenue comes from the PlayStation, and yet we're not seeing are we seeing Epic go after Sony to say hey look you you also charge us unfairly 
and and because that's a that's you know, perhaps seen by many as it even more of a closed system so is this do you think this is then going to spur on epic to continue to once if apple if they win against apple will they then go against google because i know google pulled them from the store as well didn't they and 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 then obviously on the consoles of, of Xbox and Sony and on, on that side of things. Well, exactly how they go around the consoles, it, that's sort of remains to be seen. Obviously, they, they're both sort of fairly closed systems on their own. I mean, on the on the PC, Epic has its own game store and, you know, everything is a lot easier to work with. Um, you're not stuck to buying everything through Microsoft. Android is an interesting proposition because, I, um, I mean, the, they have shown the user stats um, related to the amount of money they made as well from all these different platforms, as you just said. And the Android use was incredibly small. But Android also, although Google did remove them for exactly the same reason, you are allowed to install any app you like on an Android device. You get a warning to say you're potentially doing something dangerous, but all you have to do is install the Epic Games installer and then it will download and install the Fortnite app for you. I've done it plenty of times. It takes a really long time. Um, and it's not the smoothest of processes, but it can be done. So I doubt that Epic will have any fight with Google. I, th- I, I get the feeling that this is more a case of Epic, Epic making the principal point here and, mm. you, and having set up the situation. They're the ones who seem to be doing the legwork through the courts because they have some money to put behind this. And some of the other, there are a lot of other developers who have gripes with Apple, not not all about payments, but many about the services that they get access to on Apple's platform. Tile has been up in court in the last week talking about how they felt they were shut out of Apple's system for their Tile products. And as you know, Apple has just released the AirTags, which offer almost exactly the same functionality. Tile's argument there is that Apple basically shut the door on them and that their product is no longer optimized anymore because apple has given preference to their own devices so there is a lot of this going around still to come mike gives us his verdict on the toyota mirai someone trying i.e toyota here to keep those conversations open and think about different ways of doing things projectors used to be reserved for boardrooms or fancy cinema rooms at home but over the last couple of years that's changed thanks to advancements in projector technology the size and more importantly the cost So has that changed the way that we use projectors in the home? And if so, what's in store for the technology in the future? I recently caught up with Simon Jonas at projector company Optima, whose job it is is to look at the way we use projectors and look at new ways to help the company capitalize on those trends. And given that we've just spent a year cooped up in our houses, it turns out many of us are looking at projectors in a new light. I started by asking just how our needs have changed over the last decade when it comes to projector use in the home. Uh, projection as a whole has been an ever evolving uh, piece in terms of the technology that people expect to see. And and the reality is, is we, we look at the market from a TV perspective first, what's happening on the television side of things and the trends that, are, that we see there. And you'll often see that projection is quite closely following those trends, um, albeit on a, on a bigger scale, much bigger screen. Um, the trends as such that you would have seen over the last decade haven't changed, as in the trends tend to be things like um, higher brightness, moving to larger resolutions. Um, but of course, the, the 
the signposts, as, as, as I would say, um, move forward or the goalposts move forward in line with that. Mm. So, for example, there was a change moving in towards 720p, um, then into 1080. Now we're seeing the change uh, of moving into 4K, for example, on the resolution front. Um, more recently, however, those trends have been amplified. Um, and that's all linked to the COVID effect. And I suppose because we're all at home and we have been for, although we're getting back out again, but we've been trying to watch, you know, watch more telly where streaming is booming. You've got more services like Disney Plus and, uh, and and in the States, HBO Max coming on board and things like that. And I suppose that there's more content for people to enjoy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, content is always key. Um, you know, having the right content available to make the most out of your product is, is always going to be a driving factor. Um, and what you'll see, actually, the, the more recent trends, you know, COVID has, has certainly slowed down things like the pro AV side, which is more focused on sort of staging, rental solutions, etc. But the rise in home application has been astronomical. Um, and over the last year, that's really where, where projection businesses is started to move forward. And it's driven by the fact that people are in their homes more at the moment um, and the fact that actually they want to enjoy that time as much as humanly possible. And as such, um, you'll, you'll notice markets like gaming, for example, and the movie industry has really been booming lately. Um, and streaming services, of course, doing extremely well. You mentioned a few already. Um, yeah. And it's those applications that are driving the, the hardware change. And so has that changed? Obviously, if you're looking at more content, you know, you've, you've got you know more choices on Netflix or, or what have you to watch. Then there's more big movie moments so to speak and therefore you think well you know let's get a projector because i can you know we'll create a cinema night in, in the evening or whatever yep. does that does that do those have you noticed a change in in appetite from from customers saying okay actually uh, my 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 goals have changed so i want to be able to pop this projector up you know instantly in a living room or now i'm suddenly wanting to watch you know cinema in the garden and things like that and, and have you or or even on the sense of you know a gamer saying right I'm, I'm now i've got a playstation 5 or an xbox series x i, I want it to do more yeah it's funny you should ask that because i'm a customer who fits into all three of those categories <laughs> actually um so hopefully if you don't mind i'll take them sort of one at a time yeah yeah, yeah. um so starting with uh, you know the outdoor garden situation um no doubt this has become a very popular trend since sort of uh, late April last year. Um, and this is something you see a lot has been driven. Um, and people, uh, most of the time, that's more of a, a sports element, to be completely honest with you, inviting friends over, being able to socially distance in your gardens and watch a, a popular football match, for example. Mm. And, and to have such a product that in itself is driving trends because, of course, portability is key. You don't want to be dragging cables here, there and everywhere. Yeah. Um, and equally, um, trying to deliver high brightness because, of course, projection is affected by ambient lighting um, and this can wash out an image. So it's driving those kinds of trends and, and those things are happening anyway. But these trends are just having to accelerate to meet demand that's coming from those from those sort of use cases. When we sort of start taking it back into the home and we look at home cinema in particular, um, absolutely, there's big movie moments and there's a lot of content that's available. And and, and trying to enjoy that and immerse yourself in that. I guess for a lot of people, it's a form of escapism. You know, we have been confined to our houses for so long. Being able to get lost in, in a completely different environment, different world of a movie, is something that appeals to, to many an individual out there. And we're definitely seeing that trend. Um, gaming, however, is a slightly different um, 
I say it's a slightly different situation altogether because gamers come in in, in a multitude of ver- you know a variety should I say and mm. um, you've got those who are sort of hardcore dedicated gamers perhaps those who are looking to compete in future in in esports for example and and for these these customers a projector isn't necessarily the right option for them because they will be looking for the type of things that everyone else isn't actually they care about the refresh rate the response rate yeah. being as quick as humanly possible not overly um concerned about graphics capabilities for example um or things like ray tracing which is um you know making sure that light in a game reflects correctly you know competitive gamers don't care about those things quite so much but what it does appeal to is the more casual gamer um so those who are playing on consoles predominantly ps5 xbox um i've got the ps5 already myself absolutely love playing it on a projector (laughs) yeah had to work hard to get one for sure um what you'll see is we have gaming projectors come into the range which we may talk about more in in, uh, later but but you know for gaming gaming drives consideration for sure but it won't be the the main driving factor behind the projector and so do you find that you know one of the perhaps on the plus side is that if we're all looking for that bigger picture and that that more immersive experience and certainly being at home more but at the same time on the negative side perhaps towards projectors is that TVs have been getting bigger and bigger and cheaper and cheaper and so some people might say well I'll just I'll, I'll be happy with a 65 inch TV or an 80 inch TV because now you can get them for you know the same price as a as a reasonably priced projector mm-hmm. And and yeah, I get this. You know, I get the the better refresh rate, so the better color. Okay, I've got this big black screen in my room. But you know, are you seeing that effect anywhere? Yeah. I think I think you raise a, a, a valuable point. Um, and then I think this one is a little bit more subjective. I think you'll get different responses from different individuals. Uh, if I was to take my own personal setup as an example. Um, I very much believe that when you want a big screen, you want to bring that big screen in and have that as a centerpiece when you're using it. The biggest problem I personally find with having a very large television is is when it's uh, downtime when you're not using it. Mm. And because as you mentioned, there is that big black screen. It's a focal point of any living room typically. Um, and anyone who's got a, a big screen 70 inch and above, I think most people will agree, unless you've got a very big room, it can dominate your room and become a bit of a monster you care about the look and feel of, of your living environment so to speak so i actually have a smaller screen sub 50 inch that i use for day-to-day viewing and when it's ready for when i'm ready for those big screen moments of course uh, a manual or an electronic pull down projector uh, screen is, is a great option now a lot of people worry about having you know talking about big rooms and, and small rooms and stuff like that a lot of people worry about sort of thinking well i need a huge room for a projector you know, because not only have I got to have a big white wall somewhere or a screen that pulls down, but then I've got to feel like I've got to have a room far enough away for the projector to to make it. We're starting to see, mm-hmm. you know, uh, short throw projectors in there, traditional projectors, and we're starting to see the ones where you put them against the wall and they've got, you know, kind of yeah. beam the picture up. Is, is there a solution? Is that being solved or is it, do you still need a big room? No, um, I'd say that is definitely a concern of the past. Um, throw ratios have got shorter and shorter. Um, so there are some very good short throw solutions out there. But for those who really want convenience and, and, and simple use case, um, you then have the ultra short throw category. So Optima, for example, have our Cinema X range, um, the P1 and the P2. It's actually the P2 that, that I'm using at the moment currently. And you can get um, from from sort of a good sort of 30, 40 centimeters away, anything between sort of 100 and 120 inch screen produced from that. 
Um, so within that setup, we're talking about having your projector maybe the same distance as you would typically have your consoles uh, on a table underneath the screen, basically. Wow. So that's, and then that allows you to to take away that, you know, I don't need a, a room that's 10 meters long to, to <laughs> create a, an image that size. So where do you, where do you see it going? Because as you say, you talked at the beginning about this idea of, you know, driving new technologies going from 720p up to 4k. Obviously on TV horizon, we've got 8, 8k, there's HDR, there's, you know, high refresh rates we're now talking about. Do you see the projectors following that same trend? Or do you see that they're going to take advantages of other things that perhaps the TV can't? Um, typically, the trends uh, tend to be the same, um, but a few years sort of behind um, is what I would say. So 8K, we, we, we won't be going to 8K projection in, in the immediate future for sure. Um, and the reason we won't see that, again, is, again, it comes down to content being key. There's not a huge amount of content out there, and people are only just starting to move on um, to the 4K bandwagon. So what you'll see at the moment, the, the predominant projector resolution actually is still 1080p today. Um, but what we're seeing is that trend moving into 4K, which we knew was coming. It's absolutely been accelerated in the last six to 12 months. Um, for projection specifically, you, you get more requests for higher lumens because people are now more interested in, in lights on mode, meaning you know you can still get a good quality image even when the ambient light is not fully within your mm. control. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, you've got the, the sort of short throw and ultra short throw trend that's coming. One other thing that I haven't mentioned yet that's that's been a big change is the whole sort of lamp to laser move. Um, because with lamps, of course, you have to replace quite regularly or relatively regularly. And whereas with laser, especially some of our products, we're, you know, we put forward a 30,000 hour laser light source. Um, so that's quite a considerable amount of, uh, of viewing time. The Toyota Mirai is just one of two cars available in the UK that's a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle. But with only eight hydrogen refueling stations available in the UK, is this more a proof of concept rather than a viable offering that you will want to be your next car? Pocalimp Reviews editor Mike Lowe has been driving it to find out. So, what's it like, Mike? So, it's it's really quite exciting, but it's also really quite a conundrum because, as you pointed out, at the very beginning there hydrogen is the fuel that it takes in, in effect um which it then mixes with oxygen to power its electric motor and you just get water come out the the pipe at the, at the end and that's it very simple. crazy really cool very futuristic the name mirai does mean future in japanese um but you can't really find anywhere much to fill it up um and so do you have to fill it up with a station? You can't just kind of yeah. ship in hydrogen into your garage. No, it's it's very um it's very complex. It's um compressed basically, so it, it needs to be handled properly. Um it, it's you know, it's one of those things really where ultimately if you had, let's say, a hydrogen pump at every petrol station, you'd be fine. But logistically that's mm. just not possible um there's just way too much else in in terms of installing all that so it wouldn't really be viable um i think the thing for me is really what what this is showing is you know we're in full swing of green futures and, and evs are in kind of full effect and everyone's clamoring to get a battery powered vehicle um problem with evs is they can be a bit of a pain in the ass to charge um especially if you're trying to do long distance so the idea with hydrogen is it's really it's like having an electric car that you just 
fill it up with hydrogen, which is a green sourced material. Um, and you can fill it up exactly the same sort of speed as you would with, with petrol or diesel. So it's like a three minute fill up, you're done, you're off and you just continue. So conceptually, that's brilliant because it removes all the sort of problems that you get with electric vehicles. Um, but you need the source material. <laughs> you need to be able to yeah. And so what's the range like on these devices? Is it on these cars? Is it any different to to a, a electric or, or to a petrol? Uh, it's a, it's kind of similar to um, a petrol car. Uh, the, the arrangement in this is they've got uh, three tanks underneath. So there's quite a lot of capacity. Um, it's Toyota quotes it'll do 400 miles, which is 640k. Um, you, you're probably not going to get quite that much if you're kind of banging it about quite a lot, but right. getting 300 miles upward is not really a problem. And realistically, a, a sort of luxury saloon type car like this, that's probably bang on the money for what you'd get out of a, a petrol equivalent as well. So um, I would say it's better than most EVs and also it's hydrogen, so it's not affected by seasonality. So if you, you know, have a Tesla in the winter, it won't go as far as it will in the summer because batteries are affected by temperature quite significantly and this just doesn't suffer that issue so again hydrogen is a better principle a better kind of offering in that regard but you just can't really fill it up in very many places because it's these are lots of random strange questions obviously when you're driving an electric car it's effectively silent because there's no motor mm-hmm. so do you still have with a hydrogen car do you still have a big motor under the under the hood the bonnet at the front and therefore you're just filling in hydrogen. Does it come in liquid form? Like how does it, or is it in a gel or so it's, it's gas? What, what is it? What is, how's it like? <laughs> it's like an electric car. That's, that's pretty much what it is. So it's, you know, it's a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle. The last part being the key EV aspect of that. Um, all it's doing is taking hydrogen in as its fuel and it mixes that with oxygen to create energy. And then that powers the electric motor. So the only noise you get um really pretty much is that um noise that is a requirement to have in electric vehicles because right. it's, you have to have a little hum a little whistle whatever every brand has its own kind of different tonality or, or source and sound um so that's that's all it's very quiet um because it, it's not it's not burning fuel as such um, it's just mixing it so yeah it's, it's like driving an ev it just happens to be the source material is much more immediate and more direct, um, but unfortunately, harder to source. And, and that's kind of the the constant cycle of this. It, in so many ways, it's better than just having a plug-in electric vehicle. But also, it, unless you were to live in a very specific area, so like when, when you research where these stations are, you could absolutely live around the M25 with one, no problem. And that could be a great idea for a certain business or a certain customer. Um, there are other stations, obviously, scattered around the UK. There'll be more coming as well. Um, and there's probably some I don't know about that I've tried to find out about. But again, locating these things is a tricky. One of the problems with, or one of the problems Tesla found when it first launched the Model S in this country was obviously the electric infrastructure, electric charging infrastructure wasn't great. And so one of the successes of the Tesla now is that they obviously invested quite a lot at the beginning to put in huge supercharging stations on major arteries around around the UK. And so a Tesla, you know, an owner can know that they can drive, you know, pretty much anywhere in the UK and around Europe 
and and the US for that matter, knowing that they're not that far away from a supercharger. Has Toyota got the same, are they taking the same approach by putting in the hydrogen fuel cell pumps, you know, charging stations effectively, or are they just relying on market forces to hopefully someone to do that? And, you know, that's great. That's great. Um, It's kind of like a circular conversation because Toyota doesn't produce these plants themselves. Um, There are, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning, there are other makers um, such as Hyundai that also have a car in the UK. Um, And there are others that have dabbled in hydrogen as well. I've driven a hydrogen BMW in the past. So it's kind of that big open conversation. And and you're talking about Tesla very specifically. So with, with charging infrastructure in the UK, superchargers are great if you have a Tesla, but that's all it will work for. So all other EVs, you've got to source from different sources, which are less reliable, often less fast. Um, yeah, and like Kia are trying to get through that, aren't they, with their Kia charge system and things like that. I'm just, what I'm trying to work out is that Tesla had to do that because when it first came into the UK, there wasn't anything there. And so, you know, in the same way that Toyota coming in as a hydrogen, you know, fuel cell option, there isn't anything there at the moment. And so I'm just curious whether they're pushing it to, you know, pushing the the charging stations themselves as, you know, you'll see Toyota charging, you know, hydrogen fuel pumps appearing all over the place to service their customers or whether they're hoping you know, whether they're just hoping that like BP or Shell or something will do it for them. There'll no doubt be conversations behind the scenes, but I, I can't talk for them specifically when it comes to the, the sourcing of it because it's, like you say, BP and so on, it's kind of, it's handled by a, a different part of the whole business and it's not Toyota's business as such. So there'll definitely be some rallying to try and get more people behind this. I think really this is a consumer product trying to point out that it is definitely feasible and actually you don't need that much more um, in volume of stations to make it quite a viable product. Um, there's just a bigger conversation around what else it can be used for because actually in the future when there's, particularly in Europe, a lot more um, legislation that, that limits what you're allowed to, to buy brand new and drive, for things like haulage, they predict that actually hydrogen is a very sound methodology of getting big trucks around and stuff because, again, you can fill it quick, drive it far, not have any seasonal effects on it and it makes a lot of sense really but it's chicken and egg Mm. right it's kind of there are lots of other parties involved all of which are going to be keen to to get this moving and and it is moving this is you know the second generation it's six years in but it, it just needs that momentum and i think the problem is actually the momentum has gone in the direction of plug in evs and and that's taken the you know it's taken everyone's attention and, and that seems to be the thing to get behind. But actually, perhaps logically, this is a more sensible solution. And yet, because of the products in terms of fueling, right this second, it isn't. And that's the final question I suppose I was going to ask is is coverage, you know, whether there's a hydrogen fuel charger, pump system, whatever you'd call it, near you, is it worth from a driving perspective and an experience perspective, is it worth it to take that punt? Like, did you, as a car, did you enjoy it? As a luxury saloon, yeah, it's a bit like driving a Lexus, really. It's, um, it's got a lot going for it. It's, it's easy, it's comfortable, it's quick, it's like driving an EV. Um, you just have to know you'd be very much within the parameters of where you can get that fuel from. Um, that should only increase in the future. So, you know, if, if you know you're not going to drive to Scotland next week, you'd be fine but you've you've got to understand those restrictions i suppose and 
and in a way therefore it is a bit of a punt but it's kind of an exciting one in other regards because it gets that whole possibility of future different materials um different fuel types and yeah it just kind of keeps that conversation going you have to have someone trying i.e Toyota here to keep those conversations open and think about different ways of doing things that's it for this week's show thanks for listening until next time pip hip. when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.